Looking to add another dance podcast to your weekly rotation? Subscribe now to the Conversations on Dance podcast. Hosted by former Miami City Ballet dancers Rebecca King-Ferraro and Michael Sean Breeden, Conversations on Dance takes you behind the scenes of the ballet and dance worlds in chats with dancers, choreographers, educators, and more. A catalog of over 250 episodes means there is a lot to binge, with new conversations coming every week. Subscribe to Conversations on Dance wherever you get your podcasts. Find out more about them at conversationsondancepod.com and follow them on social media at Conversations on Dance. dance friends and welcome to the dance edit podcast i'm margaret fuhrer and i'm courtney Escoyne. we are editors at dance media and we have some good stuff in today's episode first we're going to talk about the reality of dance journalism today because it's this field in which paid opportunities are continually shrinking and yet there's still some room for optimism um, the dance journalist says, hopefully. <laughs> um, we will discuss a Washington Post story looking at how the pandemic has affected the traditional company model in modern dance, which was already in decline pre-COVID, but now that's been accelerated. And we will ask a question that I think a lot of the internet has been asking ever since Horror Night on Dancing with the Stars last week, which is, is Dancing with the Stars not just sort of a campy, guilty pleasure, but actually good art? That's such a good mix of topics. I'm not even going to do our regular housekeeping segment today. I just want to get into it. So let's start with the usual dance headline rundown, because that's actually also full of interesting stuff this week. Yeah, so Boris Charmatz will be the next director of Towns Theatre Wuppertal Pina Bausch, uh, pending final approval from the city of Wuppertal. Uh, so if I've done my math correctly, when the choreographer takes the reins next September, he will be the company's sixth artistic leader since Bausch's death in 2009. Uh, there's been a lot of turnover, and not all of it has been... Friendly. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. It's been a lot. Yeah. I mean, I admittedly don't know Charmat's work very well. I mean, it seems like he lives in the same theater dance space as as Pina Bausch, which is unsurprising. But yeah, I mean, hopefully this brings the company some stability, although a part of me wishes they'd chosen a woman. Yeah, well, and then another interesting thing is like, yes, it looks like he will be creating his own works on the company, also stewarding the works of Pina, which is like a huge you know, a huge part of what that company does. Another interesting thing uh, in the press release that I got was talking about like establishing a dual home situation where they're going to have more mm-hmm. of a presence in France and like still be based in Wuppertal, but also be a more international company. I, who knows? Shrug who emoji. Knows? That's the only yeah. reaction that I can have is shrug emoji. That'll, that'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. All right, so heading back stateside now, the lineup for the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, which will be open to live spectators this year, was announced earlier this week. And we're going to see the Broadway casts of Six, Moulin Rouge, and Wicked. They'll all be performing. We'll also get some kind of preview of the upcoming TV event, Annie Live. And we'll also get to see performances by Ballet Hispanico and then, as ever, the Rockettes. And I'm personally really excited that Ballet Hispanico is getting this big national platform. That is fantastic. Yeah, I'm honestly just can't wait to see what they're going to be doing. Yeah. They have such an interesting 
mix of choreographers and their reps. So, yeah. And six also is going to blow the, I guess, metaphorical roof off the place. I can't wait. I can't oh, wait absolutely. It's going to be so much fun. Uh, and sticking in our Broadway theme, uh, Bollywood is coming to Broadway, at least eventually. Uh, Come Fall in Love, the DDLJ musical, will be based on a beloved 1995 Bollywood rom-com and will follow an Indian-American woman who convinces her strict father to let her have a summer adventure in Europe before her arranged marriage to a family friend. Of course, that does not go as planned. It's a rom-com. Uh, the Indian and American creative team includes Tony winner Rob Ashford as choreographer with associate choreographer Shruti Merchant uh, and current plans are for the musical to premiere at San Diego's Old Globe next September with sights set on a Broadway run in the 2022 through 23 season. It's almost hard to believe we haven't already had a Bollywood musical on Broadway, right? It's yeah. I can't wait to see what this is going to be. Yeah, yeah, for sure. All right. So in TV news, choreographer Lorianne Gibson, who is very busy these days, is developing a new reality TV series called Icon. And it's designed to discover and cultivate the next pop star via a super intensive training camp, which, you know, nobody does intensive training camp like Lorianne Gibson. So that'll be fun. Uh, And New Dance Alliance is continuing its Black Dance Artists Space to Create Residency. The 2022 recipients are Ama Maad Gora, Kayla Hamilton, and Niall Harris. Uh, Each will receive a one-week residency at Modern Accord Depot in Accord, New York, as well as living space and a $2,000 stipend, as well as unlimited access to New Dance Alliance's studio space in New York City throughout the 2022 season. That's great news. I can't believe it. I think our whole headline rundown this week is positive stuff because our final item is a shout out for Misty Copeland, whose most recent book, Black Ballerinas, came out on Tuesday. Congrats to Misty. Black Ballerinas is a look at 27 groundbreaking Black women in ballet. They're Copeland's artistic forebears and peers and inheritors. It's an extraordinary book. And our fellow podcast host, Lydia Murray, did an excellent interview with Misty about how it all came together for Point Magazine, which we will, of course, link in the show notes. Please check it out. Yeah, two brilliant women in conversation, and we get to read about it. How wonderful. We're we're so lucky. It's so great. (laughs) All right. So our first discussion segment today concerns a topic that, for obvious reasons, is deeply important to us hosts, and that is the current state of dance journalism. So not one, but two different essays went up online this week from two prominent dance writers, both of them sort of mourning the ways the profession has been diminished in their eyes. So Marina Harse wrote a a relatively measured piece for Dance Magazine, and then Elizabeth Zimmer did a rather less measured piece for The Village Voice. And they arrive at some different conclusions, but they do agree on one central premise, which is that people used to be able to make a living at dance writing. And over time, that's become impossible as the field has kind of imploded. Um, Now there's only one full-time dance writer at a daily paper. And that means that today, most dance writing is happening online, and most of it is unpaid. So the whole landscape is increasingly fragmented, and all of those things are, you know, only more true, thanks to the pandemic. So this is not a new story. This is a story that's been unfolding for the past, like, two decades. And it's also, of course, not unique to dance journalism or to arts journalism. It's the whole world of journalism. But I think it's worth taking a beat at this sort of, you know, crossroads moment where we're reevaluating everything to look at where things stand in our field today and why, and also to talk about 
not just the bad, but the good that's come out of this whole digital transformation. Yeah, so I think we both have a lot of thoughts and a lot to say about this. Um, yes. And I think one of the biggest, most major points that Marina alludes to a little bit, but doesn't necessarily super get into, right, of the idea of dance writing no longer being a profession, the way that honestly, a lot of journalism is not necessarily a paying profession anymore. Mm -hmm. One of the uh, inherent issues that comes into play is the whole idea that in order to practice this, you have to be financially stable by some other means. It's increasingly become something that because you are not getting paid to do it, you are essentially donating your time to do this thing because you believe in it, because you love it, any of those things. And what that ultimately translates into systemically is uh, folks who, you know, don't have a partner who can support their writing career or maybe don't have the parental support financially or anything like that. It makes it much more difficult to actually be able to devote the time and it limits the diversity of voices that we are reading and hearing from, uh, especially in, you know, mainstream publications that do still have dance writing. Which, mm -hmm. you know, okay, diversity in and of itself, like, yes, we champion that. But like, why do we champion that in this case? And I think it's important, right? Because it's it's borderline impossible for like any given person to be an expert in like every genre Everything. of dance that they see, right? Like, I might have a ton of ballet knowledge and be able to connect like the new work in front of me back through the form's history and point to the departures it takes and note where the technique presented was strong and where it was lacking. And because I have a whole bunch of context from which to speak. And it's like based on years of studying and being steeped in that particular mode of performance and the culture that creates it. And if that is my only knowledge base and I walk into something steeped in like Katakali or Bharatanatyam, like there are things that I'm just not going to catch because I don't have that same context. And mm -hmm. that's fine as a spectator. Like I'm a big proponent of the idea that like we are all bodies moving in space. And so your response to a piece of dance performance is as valid as my response. But as a dance writer and as a critic, like helping bridge that gap between a spectator who might not have the context or the training or the practice at translating what they're seeing into words is the whole point. And so if there's a lack of depth on the part of the critic, that can lead to kind of a dismissiveness, both on the part of the critic and on the part of people reading that. And that becomes a self-perpetuating cycle in which the styles and genres and artists who have always been at the forefront of the conversation remain at the forefront and too bad for everyone else. Mm -hmm. So maybe it seems like a relatively minor point, but it does have these massive ripple effects. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and what Marina basically says is, how do we attract the different types of writers that we need a more diverse group that understands that there's life outside of Western concert dance? How do we attract mm -hmm. them to this profession if it is no longer a profession to give them the support they need to build the deep knowledge base and to give them the platforms that they need to reach the kind of audiences that they're hoping to educate? On the more positive side, though, I guess the, the upside of the digital transformation is that now the social media platforms in particular mean that all of those voices do have a place to yeah. get to, to be heard if they want to be heard. Yeah, gatekeeping has largely been taken out of the equation because you can, you know, go on TikTok and talk about X, Y, and Z and potentially Absolutely. that can be super amplified. And there are some brilliant dance folks on TikTok who are making videos about dance history, about the problems in the dance mm -hmm. world, about their experiences with those problems, their feelings about them. They reach completely different kinds of audiences, younger and broader audiences than traditional dance media. And like, I was just thinking, some of my favorite cultural critics these days are actually meme accounts. Like, mm. 
the Instagram account somatic based content only oh, Sheldon Crisis. I repost them constantly. <laughs> it's I mean it's just hitting on the dance zeitgeist in ways that a lot of the professional journalism world is is not. And in some ways it's not able to. Is not able to exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's just that none of those voices are getting paid. So Yeah, and that's the thing is that like there are all these brilliant voices and okay, cool, the internet has given them a platform. Is there a way that they can like be supported so that they can keep doing this? Because it is work. It is labor. Mm -hmm. And yes, it can be a labor of love, but also I think we are all even more so than usual these days, have learned to value our time and our labor. And this is a huge ongoing theme in the dance world and everywhere else, like valuing that time and knowledge and labor. And like, I want the people who are doing great TikTok criticisms right now to like 20 years from now be able to still be commenting with yeah. like that breadth of knowledge and like to have been able to grow through it. Like, I want to see that. So how do we support that? How do we make it happen? We don't have the answers. We just have questions. We have so many questions. That's our job as writers. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll link to both Marina Harris's piece and Elizabeth Simmer's piece in the show notes so you can read them yourself. All right. So our next discussion segment today is also about the pandemic sort of accelerating structural shifts that were already happening in the dance world. So Sarah Kaufman recently wrote a piece for the Washington Post that talks about First of all, the modern and contemporary dance companies that did not make it through the pandemic. And I don't know, at least some of that information was actually news to me, at least. I didn't realize that Taylor 2, the Paul Taylor second company, had shuttered, for example. But the story also talks about how the pandemic has basically threatened or I guess further threatened the fiscal and business model that the that many US modern dance companies relied on for the past several decades. And I say further threatened because, yeah, that whole, you know, single choreographer and a consistent group of dancers structure was really becoming the exception rather than the rule well before COVID. But yeah, let's talk about all the ideas explored in that story. Yeah, well, and kind of the companies that she specifically highlighted as having shut down, uh, you know, Taylor to that second company, uh, Aspen Santa Fe Ballet, Ryu Dance New York, uh, Ten Harry Legs, Mad Boots. Saying that all in a row is breaking my heart all over again. Yeah, it's intense. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and there is something to be said about like the heartbreak of the this particular perfect storm taking away some of these like consistent dance gigs that were still holding on and still existed. However, like, you know, the reality is that for the last 20 plus years, uh, having like a single company job that pays all your bills and that being your career, like especially in contemporary dance, especially in New York, that's become wildly rare. Like mm -hmm. it is much more normal if you are talking about having a contemporary dance career here to like be talking about like, hopefully I have three choreographers I work with consistently that it all adds up to pay and can work around my like survival gig as well as I can work around their rehearsal gigs and make them work mm -hmm. together. That is a much more common story. So there is something to be mourned here. I do feel like there is a little bit of a like gap of like, okay, but like this was already, this was already happening. Mm -hmm. in the story. Yeah. I mean, I feel like the bigger picture question is really what what are the inherent values of that old school company mm -hmm. model? Like what parts of it are worth saving and how can we save them if the model itself is not sustainable? So like salary jobs, consistent weeks of work, benefits, 
opportunities to tour, close and consistent contact with like a like-minded group of artists that allows for the development of a of a, an artistic language. I think mm-hmm. many, maybe most, yeah. yeah, maybe most performers value those things, want those things. Do we have to stick with the old model of a year-round dance company led by a single choreographer to get them those things? Like clearly we have to address funding issues for dance generally. No model that provides dancers with salaries and benefits will be possible without more money and resources than the dance field is getting right now. But I did think it was interesting that the Washington Post piece concluded with quotes from a couple of dancers who had been members of these companies that recently shuttered talking about the gig work that they've been doing since then as like freeing and refreshing. Mm. So how can we allow dance artists to choose the type of path they want without having to like hustle day in and day out to support themselves? I feel like it's just the pandemic re-raising that question, which is a question we always seem to be asking here in the United States. Well, and then I think also like something that um, I appreciated that was gotten into in the story was uh, talking specifically to Pascal Ryu about Mm -hmm. the closure of the Ryu Dance Center in Queens, New York, uh, which you know, had just opened, was going to be like a home for the company. There were, uh, you know, like a program for young students. There was also, you know, offering rehearsal space. It was like a very cool and needed thing. And they, but they talk about in the story about having to shut it down as well as shut down the company because it was still so early in that venture that they weren't at a point in the business plan where it was breaking even before the pandemic. And the pandemic just cut off all the lifelines essentially and because (laughs) it and the company were tied together financially uh when it went under the company went under with it and it was something that you know perfect storm like had the pandemic not happened they would probably be doing all right in theory but you know like you you can't uh predict a global pandemic who knew (laughs) i mean yeah this is another one of those stories that raises a whole bunch of complicated questions that we can't answer. Um, But yeah, please do read the Washington Post story, which we've also linked in the show notes. All right, last up today, we need to talk about Dancing with the Stars. And I both do and do not mean that in the we need to talk about Kevin sense. Um, (laughs) Good reference. (laughs) Had to do it. I think a lot of people generally, but dance people in particular, have sort of gotten used to dismissing the show as a kind of schmaltzy, circusy camp, um, or sometimes something even worse, like when it troll casts Sean Spicer, that's significantly worse. But last week, the show had a Horror Night episode that prompted a sort of existential crisis across a particular (laughs) swath of the internet, because the whole episode was kind of brilliant. And two routines in particular were actually incredible. Like Jojo Siwa's Pennywise the Clown and Iman Shumpert and Daniela Karagakis Untethered's. It, you have to watch the routines to get it, and we've linked them in the show notes. But basically, we don't think of Dancing with the Stars usually as a show that's going to produce excellent dance content. So what happens when it does? Um, and culture writer Kevin Fallon did this really great piece in the Daily Beast kind of unpacking all of these feelings. And Courtney, I know you have an interesting perspective on all of this as someone who has basically been unable to bring herself to watch the show, right? Yeah. And it's it's one of those things where like this piece in the Daily Beast like actually kind of helped articulate some of the things that I was like, oh yeah, this is why 
I just have never quite like bridged the gap of like being like, oh, this person that I'm theoretically interested in is on this show. I should watch it. And then I never quite make it to watching the show. And a lot of it, honestly, I think has to do with there's almost like a disconnect, right? Of because a show like Dancing with the Stars, especially one this long running, it has so many different cooks in the kitchen in order to make it happen and exist. And the agenda of producers and exec types, which is essentially get as many people to watch the show as possible, even if it means doing horrible troll casting and like, Mm -hmm. you know, editing and angling the show in a way that like is either going to inflame people's feelings in an angry way or like really feed into a specific fandom or a specific demographic. Like it's done in a very calculated way that I don't necessarily always agree with sean spicer is the most like obvious example of this it's like yeah anyway lots of great thought pieces around when that was happening have gone up i don't need to get into that further (laughs) and so there's like there's that side of it which feels so totally in some ways divorced from the like side of it which is like these are there are actual dance artists who are like working with Mm -hmm. people who are non-dancers for the most part to like teach them how to put on a show and also like the incredible craft that goes into making a like 90 second snippet of a dance that looks good on television and also meets like the non-dancers like abilities and showcases them like it's a very specific skill set and craft and i think Mm -hmm. what this week's episode did kind of showed what dancing with the stars like is capable of doing on that level which is crafting these really brilliant bite-sized pieces of dance that super play to what the like stars um abilities are Mm -hmm. and also doing it in a way that like taps into okay what is happening in culture right now like you know jojo siwa as pennywise the clown brilliant Mm -hmm. yeah 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 i know i well i i want to talk about the pros on the show because honestly that was the thing that first got me into it was the idea of these incredible dancers ballroom dancers getting this Mm. kind of platform on national television that's essentially unheard of and it's launched a lot of them they don't get paid as much as they should but Mm. they do get paid pretty well and it's launched a lot of them into this different kind of celebrity where like now we have ballroom dancers on the cover of people because of dancing with the stars that's kind of extraordinary Mm. um credit to the show for that but i mean i should i should say i'm sort of I'm in a very different place than you, Courtney, because I have watched the show fairly consistently from the beginning, and that's partly because it was my job to do so for all the years I was working on Dance Spirit. So that kind of obligation can breed its own <laughs> resentment sometimes. <laughs> I very much have a love-hate relationship with the show. I mean, I don't know. I feel like we should just acknowledge that the premise of it is pretty ridiculous, but it knows it. Like, it has no illusions about its own seriousness to its credit. And it makes its good moments when they happen sort of transcendent, partly because they're so unexpected, like the cognitive dissonance is part of the thrill, you know? Mm. So for me, I think there are different categories of celebrity contestants. Like, let's talk about the celebrity contestants. Right. Different categories that appeal to me. First, there are the celebs who are actually good dancers. Like, I lived for Alfonso Ribeiro's season. I thought he was fantastic. (laughs) A person we sort of forgot was a great dancer than getting to do this dance on network TV. Love it. Then there are the people that you think are awesome outside of dance who come into this crazy environment and make the absolute most of it. Like I put Johnny Weir from last season in that category. He was fantastic. And then there are people like Jojo, Jojo Siwa, who are both great dancers, 
and personalities that a lot of people love. Look how many people dressed up as her for Halloween. My gosh. So many. Um, Just so many. And then, by the way, she's making queer history on the show. Great. That is all great. And the perfect Dancing with the Stars storm happens when you have a fun personality, a good dancer, and some great TV choreography on Horror Night with JoJo's routine. Uh, In that moment like that, like, do I love Dancing with the Stars? I sure do. I sure do. (laughs) Um, I think that's like that weird disconnect, I guess, for me comes from a place of like, I want to support the dancers and the storylines that I that seem like valuable. Mm -hmm. But I also don't want to support the absolute BS that these producers sometimes pull. And at the end of the day, it's ratings are ratings and engagement is engagement. And I don't think they much care what it's coming from. And so it's it's a difficult uh, for me, at least it has always been a difficult thing to like reconcile. But it is cool whenever I get to hear about like, hey, Jojo Siwa did this really cool thing. And I'm like, cool, I'm going to go look up that routine. I'll go watch that one on YouTube. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's a ton of push and pull happening. That's always sort of the case in reality TV. But all right, I'm going to stop myself because I could seriously keep talking about this for days. We could actually do this for the rest of the afternoon, and then it would be a completely uneditable episode. And then (laughs) please do go read Kevin Fallon's piece in The Daily Beast. Um, It really does articulate a lot of the salient points here brilliantly and also hilariously. All right, that's it for this week. Thanks everyone for joining us. We'll be back next week for more discussion of the news that's moving the dance world. Keep learning, keep advocating, and keep dancing. Mind how you go, friends. The Dance Edit Podcast is a product of Dance Media, publisher of Dance Magazine, Dance Spirit, Point, Dance Teacher, Dance Business Weekly, and the Dance Edit Newsletter. Our hosts are Amy Brandt, Courtney Escoyne, Margaret Fuhrer, and Lydia Murray. Our music is by Celestine, with special thanks to Broadway Dance Center for helping us record those football sounds. Find out more about The Dance Edit and subscribe to our daily newsletter at thedanceedit.com. Thank you.